Hello and welcome back to another episode of LMS Cast. My name is Chris Badgett and I'm joined by a special guest, Sherry Walling from Zen Founder. Sherry, thanks for coming on the show. My pleasure, Chris. Thanks for having me. This is going to be a really great episode and it's also something that we're going to talk about a lot of things that aren't talked about enough in the entrepreneurship space, especially in the, the digital space. Uh, in terms of mental health and wellness. I'm really excited for this for this show. Sherry has a lot of experience across um, wellness from a bunch of different angles. If you haven't heard her podcast called Zen Founder, go check it out. Even if you don't consider yourself a, a founder, a startup founder with a, a SaaS app, um, education entrepreneurs and teachers who are creating products and businesses around that are just another type of founder. But before we get into all of that, uh, Sherry, I've learned from her podcast, had some experiences in her young adulthood in West Africa. I've, I've had uh, a lot of world traveling in my background, living in remote parts of Nepal and Central America, and it had a huge impact on my life. And I wanted to start by opening up a question to you, Sherry, about your experiences in West Africa. What were you doing there? How did that shape you? And how did that help influence to where you are today with Zen Founder and helping founders with uh, wellness? Yeah. So I was a student at the University of California, Davis, and it was an El Nino year, which means that it rained every day for like two or three months. And I didn't have a car. I just had a bike. So I basically rode my bike every day in the rain for three months. And I decided there's got to be a different way to live. Um, so I went down to the education abroad office and I asked them, where can I go where I don't have to have proficiency in another language and I can stay on my academic track? And it's really different. I don't want to go to like the UK. And they're like, hey, have you considered Ghana? And I said, I will go there. I will do that. And um, this was a really big move because I had come from a family that had never traveled internationally. I think I had... Um, maybe been to like four other states besides California by that point in my life. Um, so I emptied my savings account. It cost $2,000 to buy a ticket to Ghana at that time. And I bought a ticket and I went. And so I um, lived at the university um, in Lagon, which is outside of Accra. And I took classes with other Ghanaian students. And I worked... Um, on a research project slash kind of volunteer experience with street children. So children who had come mostly from other parts of Africa or remote parts of Ghana and were living and working in the market in Accra. So I hung out with them um, in the afternoons, basically. So that was a... Oh, I was just saying, that's, that's super cool. What was your like area of study there? Like what, what, what was the big focus? I mean, I was working on a psychology degree. I'm a clinical psychologist now. So I, was, I did an undergraduate degree in psychology, but I did a lot of more kind of social work and um, I would say like urban and international development courses that had a more kind of sociological, like bigger picture focus than individual psychology. I did spend some time um, volunteering in a mental health hospital, which... Um, those are very uh, tremendously interesting, scary, sobering places in any country, but especially in West Africa where there are fairly limited resources. Um, that was a, a you know sobering place to spend time. 
And I, when I think about my development as an entrepreneur or my development as a professional, um, I think going to Ghana at that point in my life did a couple of things. One, I, I feel like it taught me that all the doors can be open. Um, you know, I grew up in rural Northern California with lots of people who looked exactly like me and had the same kind of experiences as I did. And going to a place that was so different and interacting with people who had completely different life stories than I did was such an important lesson in me believing there's really like, there's nobody I can't talk to. There's nobody I can't kind of share a meal with and figure out who they are and how they tick. And that's essentially what a psychologist does, right? I, I have this deep, deep, deep curiosity about people and how they work. And I think that really started there. Um, so that's, that was probably the first one, this sense that all doors are open. That's awesome. Let me, let me ask you on that note. Um, I think it was Margaret Mead, the anthropologist, who said that it's hard to perceive your own culture except from the context from another what did you start yeah. realizing about the world where you came from? What were some of the insights you had related to that? Yeah, it was, I think like many people who travel abroad, like it was a very mixed bag. Uh, there were parts of my upbringing that I was very grateful for. I learned to value my education in such a different way because of being alongside Ghanaian students who had worked so hard to get there. And they were so hardworking. They would take copious notes and memorize the notes um, from each lecture. So I was really humbled by how much I had taken my education for granted before that. I think as a woman, I also felt very, very grateful for the kinds of opportunities that I had had prior to that. You know, when I was in Ghana, um, it wasn't terribly unusual to see a man beating his wife on the street or, you know, there was pretty open aggression towards women. So I was very grateful to be in a place where that wasn't part of my life um, when I was growing up. But I also became aware of things, kind of the way that the U.S. works internationally, our focus on consumerism and materialism. I mean, there were some things that I came away with feeling very um, critical of the kind of upbringing that I had had and the kind of value. There are things I was grateful for. There are things I was critical of. That's awesome. Um, what We're going to talk a lot about wellness and uh, what is something that you notice in underdeveloped parts of the world just in terms of, you know, they may not have as many resources or money or access to different things, but what's something we can learn from, uh, you know, the underdeveloped parts of the world in terms of wellness? My Ghanaian friends used to make fun of me for how fast I walked. Um, and I was always sort of in a hurry, like wherever I was going and they would just say like a booty, which is like a white person basically like slow down. And my, um, my experience of being in Ghana, which has been repeated in other parts of the world in, in Vietnam and Guatemala and China and other places that I've been able to spend time has been that people who live in places without so much stuff and busyness really have 
mastered the art of taking time to really greet people and be with people and value relationships over things, value relationships over, um, over personal gain, I guess. Um, there's a sense in which there's time to greet people, to ask about how people are, to spend with people, to spend on a meal. A meal is a whole like couple hour endeavor when you're having a meal with a family. It's very different than I'm going to shove food in my face while I'm running from one thing to another. And I, I felt grateful for the lessons about both deep connection with other people and valuing that time and sharing meals together, sharing life together. I think that those are very core parts of wellness. I mean, I talk so often with people about how do you spend time with other people in meaningful ways? How do you take care of your body? How do you make sure that you sleep? How do you make sure that you eat well? These are the building blocks of wellness that I think other parts of the world remember better than, better than we do. That's awesome. Well, let's, let's fast forward to the current version of Sherry. And uh, you've got a book coming out by the time uh, people are listening to this. It may already be out. Check it out. It's called The Entrepreneur's Guide to Keeping Your Shit Together. And uh, I can't wait to read my, it myself. My 10-year-old named it, by the way. <laughs> just yep. like to say. <laughs> so you're, you're an entrepreneur. You've got kids. You know, lots going on in life. Um, what does the modern Sherry do? Like if somebody asks you or just meets you for the first time at the cocktail party, how do you explain what you do? Uh, the short version is I'm a clinical psychologist that specializes in working with people who have really intense jobs. Most that's often that's people who own their own businesses. That's awesome. And how do you frame in the Zen Founder podcast? Why did you start that? It's a huge, great free resource. Um, what's that all about? So uh, my husband, Rob, is a serial founder, so um, started a company called Drip, runs a conference called MicroConf. He's a, a busy man in his own right. Um, but we, we've been hanging out with entrepreneurs, with business owners for most of our married life together, about 17 years. And a few years ago, um, there were a string of people that we were kind of a few degrees of separation from who lost their battle to mental illness and ended up taking their lives. And we kind of looked at each other and thought like, Hey, you're a founder, you get this life, you're a psychologist, you get mental health stuff. We want to be talking about these topics um, so that, you know, we can just help people learn to pay attention to their own mental health, to their own inner lives. And hopefully you know, try to prevent people from getting to the point where they feel so desperate or so alone that they feel like they have no other choice. Um, so that started, we started about, man, it might be three years now. Yeah, something like that. Um, and we, you know, we try to talk about topics that are relevant to mental health, to family, to relationships, to sanity, to anxiety management, um, things that are practical and directly apply to people who have busy full lives. You also started Zen Tribes, which is an event. Can you tell us about that? What, where did that come from? That came because over and over and over, we heard that entrepreneurs were pretty lonely. Um, that even though they might be surrounded by people, maybe you're running a business and you, you know, you have people on your team or maybe even have a co-founder. It, it still, I think feels like you are the one who is holding up the world when you are a founder, when you have 
a business that's an extension of you. It's an extension of your ideas, your creativity, your ingenuity. And even though that there are great things about that, it, it can be a lonely path. And we kept hearing over and over that people felt isolated and they felt like nobody got them or they felt like nobody cared about them. So um, Zen Tribe is sort of our answer to that. It's a pretty intense eight weeks. We meet weekly for eight weeks. Um, it's about eight people. And we talk about you know, failure and stress and anger and kind of the mental health topics that are most common or most relevant to entrepreneurs. So we do it as sort of a boot camp, and then many of the groups decide to stay together for kind of a six-month follow-up after that. So people who participate in the groups like absolutely leave with some pretty significant relationships and some friendships, and that's that's the goal of the group is to help people be, be connected about meaningful things. That's incredible. What is it about entrepreneurs, either soci- socially, culturally, or what is it that causes them to have their unique flavor of stress, fear, and um, uh, being stuck, getting stuck, freezing? Like, what is it that makes them, uh, I guess, if you took a sample of entrepreneurs versus, you know, more folks doing their thing, like what, what causes entrepreneurs to have these issues? I love working with entrepreneurs. Um, but I think one of the things that I hear over and over is this sort of theme in a story, which is, I was really a smart kid, but people didn't really get me. And I had to find my own way to make my life interesting. So these are people, entrepreneurs are generally people who have um, had to develop off the beaten path kind of strategies. And that's great and exciting, but sort of like I learned in Africa, like it's amazing, but it's also really lonely. And it's, I, you know, it's tiring. It's easy to burn out. So I think that entrepreneurs have kind of a unique mental health risk because of the nature of what it means to start your own thing and not follow a path that someone else has set for you. Following someone else's path is easier period. Not better, but easier. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The uncertainty can, you know, pour gas on the fire, I guess. Yeah. What I know in some of your research and with mental health, you did stuff with vets uh, experiencing PTSD. What similar similarities do you see between combat veterans and entrepreneurs, (laughs) business owners? There are people that are, have gone all in on something. I mean, combat veterans, whether they, whether they set out to or not, end up being in positions where you have to go all in. You need your whole, your whole brain, your whole body, your whole training to respond to the intensity of the situations that you're put into. And in very similar ways, you know, there's probably, hopefully less gunfire, but like entrepreneurs have that same kind of experience where they've gone all in. They've, they've bet the farm on this idea. And so they've organized their lives, their family, their finances, their emotional life all around something that they're working on. And so I think that intensity is, is shared. Um, they're also, you know, I think a lot of people who are returning from combat find that it's hard for other people to understand what their experiences were like. 
and on a, on a less scale, but I still think that's an experience that many entrepreneurs talk about. Like people don't really know what my job is. People don't understand what I do. People think I don't have a job or spend my day in my pajamas. Like, um, I think again, that the nature of being in an, in a highly intensive experience that maybe your friends and family don't join you in is pretty similar. Let's talk about turning off a little bit. Uh, one of the ways to deal with uncertainty is just hustle and never ending vigilance, which comes naturally up to an entrepreneur or somebody in a combat zone by necessity. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what advice do you have for turning it off? I, and just to speak from experience, for me, I like doing just totally getting offline, being in nature, building things, doing stuff with the land or with my kids. Those, those help me. But this whole turning it off issue, what, what do you have to say about that? I think your strategies are really perfect because when we, so first of all, I think we have to turn off. Like there's really, really very undebatable research that suggests that when we live at a chronic state of arousal or a chronic state of kind of fight or flight stress response, we do our bodies very serious damage. And um, I, you know, I, that's just not a debate at this point in time scientifically. So we need places or ways to let our minds and bodies fully relax and release. And I think um, the best strategies are strategies that engage the fullness of ourselves. So something about being out in nature or hiking is it's a full sensory experience, right? You're seeing things, you're hearing things, you're smelling things, you're moving your body, you have tactile experiences. Those are the best ways I think to distract a busy mind is to flood, to flood the senses so we can kind of distract that hyperactive prefrontal cortex that wants to be planning and organizing and making decisions and doing things. When we engage our bodies in a way that our bodies are fully busy and our brains have to think about what our bodies are doing, those are great ways to relax. So for me, I do a lot of aerial yoga, which is, you know, yoga suspended on a silk in the sky. And I have to pay attention or I will fall on my head. So I, I can't be thinking about the next tribe launch or what's happening with my email list. Like I have to focus. And that's a great way to let my mind relax. I love that. I have a neighbor who has the silk hanging from a tree limb. And it's, uh, I can see how that's a 100% commitment situation. Um, in my past, I got into, uh, I did a lot of rock climbing and I can remember one of my peak flow state experiences of my life that I ever experienced. I was, um, it was just a very hard technical climb and, and there was, I was completely 100% engaged and that was the, um, that's what that was like in that, in that state of flow. So that's awesome. And I do want to bring it back a little bit to this, uh, anthropological, kind of sociological roots and say that there is scientific research. Um, Social studies have been done when electricity comes into a village. It all starts with the light bulb. As soon as the light bulb comes in and it, you know, the solar panels or whatever, that's when the circadian rhythm starts getting upset. And that's like the beginning of a very slippery slope to what is now the modern entrepreneur with dings and bells and lights and screens and you know emails and all this stuff <clears throat> but uh, you know having a healthy relationship with technology 
and being mindful of the needs of the body and what it means to be human is is such a big issue. Um, let's let's talk a little bit about uh, fear, stress, and freezing. Um, you you talk you talk about wellness. How do you frame in your mission and wellness? Like, what are the? How do you package that? Yeah. So what I. When I talk with entrepreneurs, particularly about anxiety, we'll use that as the sort of umbrella term. Um, Like the very first step is notice when it's happening. I think a lot of us are so used to functioning out of fear or out of stress that we don't really notice when we're living in anxiety. So having the awareness to be able to pay attention, like, oh my goodness, my, my chest is tight. My heart's beating faster. My my breathing is slow and shallow or my breathing is fast and shallow. I'm, I'm getting anxious. I'm getting upset here. Like that's the first step is noticing what's happening. Um, and then I think we often talk with people about getting the things that are driving anxiety kind of out of the swirl of your brain and ideally on paper in front of you. So writing down, the fears that you have, writing down the things that you're worried about, writing down the things that seem to um, derail you and, and letting yourself look at them kind of objectively and, and let them get out of your mind and, and kind of be apart from you so that you can begin to problem solve them a little bit. And of course, we have like different ways of addressing things that create anxiety. So after you notice you're having it, write down what's causing it, then you have some choices about is there something I can do to change this? Um, can I take this stress out of my life? And if I can't, you know, if it's your kid or something that's causing the stress, then, then how do you begin to think about approaching that hard part of life with more graciousness or more compassion towards yourself or just plain old being brave and not letting yourself freak out about it? You know, how do you begin to emotionally work through it in a better way? So I think wellness is really about noticing and paying careful attention to the inner life, to the inner parts of us. How do you work on your awareness? Like, are there, is there any like uh, practice daily practices or things you'd like to do from time to time um, to help with that? Yeah, I do a really simple kind of high, low check-in every day. I do it generally with my family at dinner. You know, what was your high of the day? What was your low? But then I usually do it separately, um, usually at night, ideally before I go to bed. I want to pay attention to the things that are really life-giving and the things in my life that are really like sucking life from me. (laughs) And then I have a friend that we talk every week about kind of our high-low for the week. And We've been doing that for years, so we're pretty practiced at listening to like parts of life that are not going well and maybe need to be changed versus parts of life that are thriving and how do you feed the things that are thriving. So that's one thing that I do. Um, I also practice a lot of yoga and practice a lot of stillness. And then sometimes I work out really intensively because I've got like big feelings that I need to like get out of my body. So there's a place for all of it. We all, all don't have to be sort of like zen out Buddhist bunks all the time. Like there's lots of ways to work through 
or to practice cultivating an awareness of our inner lives. About a year ago, I read your, um, your founder retreat book, ebook. And mm -hmm. I did that I, and I followed it. Like I, uh, I did the, um, I took about two, two to three days away from my family, which is a big commitment, you know, as a family person totally. and pretty much for those of you listening or watching this video, um, what that is, is it's really a time to just go inward and detach and look at things that aren't working, look at things that are working, set some goals, make some hard decisions. Um, for me, I set a lot of, you know, updated my routine. I set some big goals. It, it had a huge positive impact. So I want to thank you for that. But also, uh, the, there's this concept within education entrepreneurs, course creators out there. Um, they're often very empathetic people who are helping other people. So sometimes, how do they help them? sometimes there's an issue of just giving and giving and giving and giving and not do, taking that pause for self-care. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about founder retreats and then an, uh, and some ideas, concepts or tips for helping the helper. Yeah. And I think you have to start by pitching how important it is. You know, I think those of us who are helpers, I mean, I'm, I'm a helper. I, I take care of people all day, every day. That's what my job is. Um, we are only as good as our own internal resources. You know, my ability to focus, to think creatively, to be fully present completely depends on how well I'm taking care of myself. So I think people think about self-care as like going to the spa to get your toenails done. And, and that's fine if that's your deal. Like, cool. But um, it's really much more about making sure that your that you as the tool, you as the thing that's providing the service, the help, the insight and ideas for other people, that you are like well taken care of. So you can do a good job with that. And if you don't carefully manage your own inner resources, like you you absolutely run the risk of burnout. You absolutely run the risk of like becoming cynical or not doing a good job, not being compassionate, not providing the kind of help that people need from you. Um, and, and if you really believe you don't need to take care of yourself, you, you might need to like check your own narcissism a little bit. Like none of us are above the kinds of things that we preach. So if you aren't practicing what you're preaching, like, you know, you're in danger basically. So Go ahead. I was, was going to ask uh, burnout, just at a bigger picture, do you think as an issue in society, it's always been a problem, it's accelerating? Um, like, what is the current state of burnout out there? Is it, is it like becoming a pandemic? Um, I think you could make the case for that. And it has to do very much with the 24 hour access cycle that many of us feel we must respond to things all the time. Like the onslaught of heavy work, the um, weight of the work that we have to do, and then feeling like we aren't able to use our best resources. I mean, I could launch into that and I've talked about burnout on, on Zen Founder too in more detail, but 
um, I think it's a huge problem, especially for helpers. I mean, the whole conversation about burnout began with helpers. Yeah, that's great. Um, you know, there's a lot of focus on the morning routines, the habits, the journaling and stuff like that, but this concept of a, like a retreat, and I know this is something you do in your own life as well, where you take a, take some detachment and some reflection time and put yourself in a new environment for some fresh ideas and relaxation. Where did the idea and the, um, just the concept of that evolve for you? It's a really old idea, right? It's, it's as old as any major world religion. All, all monks have gone on retreat or had periods of sort of being cloistered away in isolation. Um, and that's probably where it came from for me. I, I have a degree in theology, so I've studied um, religious practices for years. And I think that that, you know, people talk about prayer retreats or a different fasting retreats, different kind of retreats. But this idea of setting taking yourself out of your normal day-to-day life to do deeper work. Um, it's certainly not a new idea for me. It, you know, I, I didn't come up with that, but um, has become really, really important as I've practiced it in my own life. Just coming to a point of being like, I am totally overwhelmed. I'm overwhelmed with kids. I'm overwhelmed with work. Like I need three days. And once I started doing that, once I tried doing that, like just going to a hotel by myself, it was like, this is magic. If I could do this twice a year, it's totally recharges and lets me think deeper thoughts, lets me evaluate um, how life is going, what I want life to be like. Yeah, that's great. And a simple metaphor for that that I always liked is the uh, when you're flying on a plane and they say when the oxygen mask comes out, take care of yourself before you, yeah. you know, hook other people up. It's just, it's important. <laughs> you can't help anybody if you're burning out. Yeah. And we have to think about where do our, where does our creative spark come from? Because whether you're an artist or someone who's teaching people about a new idea, you're pouring out something that comes from inside of you, your insights, your way of seeing the world. And at least for me, like that, that doesn't just, that's not an unending stream. Like that has to be recharged that has to be um, sort of a muscle that's tended. And I think retreats are a big part of that, like re- refilling your creative, your output kind of uh, resources. That's great. Well, let me ask you one final tactical question before we wrap up today, because it's an issue I see a lot with online course creators. And I've been around it for a long time. And whether they're a seasoned like million dollar program launcher or they're launching their first course or they have a lifestyle business almost without fail right before the launch there's this i now see the pattern of self-sabotage or i'm going to obsess about something that in the grand scheme of things isn't that important um i used to not really believe in fear of success or but now i think it's a real thing um what what do you think it is if in your experience being around founders, launching things, making major decisions, what is the underlying psychology that's happening there? uh, Like right before the finish line, like what's going on? And I just see a lot of kind of sabotage and like focus moving all over the place. What is that? There's sort of the, the like giant tantrum before the end. (laughs) And that's absolutely something I've observed in, well, a regression. It's like a regression of falling apart. 
when we put ourselves out there. And I got to tell you, like, I'm feeling this all in all kinds of ways with writing this book. Like I'm putting all these words out there and some people are going to look at it and they're not going to like it. They're not going to think it's smart. They're not going to think it's interesting. They're going to find every error in it. And that, so is that, is that negative self-talk? I mean, what is that? Well, in some cases it's reality, right? Like not everybody's going to love it. Like it's, a, true. Yeah. but I have to be okay with that in order to ship. Like it's the risk of rejection. It's the risk of everything that you have believed about yourself to pull your ideas together and release them out into the world. It, it's the risk that all of that's wrong. And that you're actually dumb and uninteresting and your ideas are stupid. You know, like, that's what we're afraid of at this very, like, basic core level. So, yeah, it's negative self-talk, but it's also just good old-fashioned fear. And the way that you work through that is to say, like, okay, how do I find my footing here? So what if, so what if, like, the worst-case scenario happens? So what if I release this book and people are like, this is shit. Like, nobody wants to read this and nobody does and nobody cares. Will I still be a valuable person? Will my children still love me? Will I still find joy in my life? Yeah, I will. But that's a cultivated perspective, like, something we have to work at. We have to decide that even if I fail... I'm still going to go on. Any other final tips on just having a more healthy relationship with failure or potential failure? I think sometimes it's helpful to assume it. You could go too far with that too, by the way. But, you know, I think it's helpful to realize that when you are an entrepreneur, when you're making things, when you're putting things out in the world, not everything is going to land. Not everything will be a success. And if you can like be comfortable with that idea and know at some point I'm going to do something, I'm going to put something out there and people are going to say, wow, that talk was really poorly delivered or that book was not very good or like have the resiliency within yourself to say, I'm going to try some things and not everything's going to work, but I'm still going to get up the next day and keep doing my work and kind of build in some tolerance to that from the beginning. It's a muscle. So Sherry Walling, ladies and gentlemen, the entrepreneur's guide to keeping your shit together, go check it out. Go check out the Zen founder podcast. Is there anywhere else where people can find you on the internet or where you'd like them to connect with you? Yeah, I kind of live at zenfounder.com. That's the best place to find me. Awesome. Well, Sherry, thank you so much for coming on the show and having this conversation. I really appreciate it. And I know you've sent a ripple of wellness out into the world and you know are going to continue to do so. So thank you for doing what you do. Thanks, Chris. Thanks for having me.